Let me invite you to open in our Father's Word to Matthew chapter 6. It is also the Word of the Father's Son, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is our focus for much of this spring and summer, although we're taking a break Mother's Day through Father's Day, as we sometimes do, to focus on what God's Word teaches about family life. But today we are back in the chapter that we have looked at together for a few weeks, Matthew chapter 6. It'll be several minutes before I call your attention to phrases, verses in the chapter, but we, we will get there. This morning we began our worship by saying, Praise be to God our Father. We sang about our good, good Father. We prayed to our Father. We have a verse in the order of service that speaks about how great the Father's love for us is, that we should be called his children. But does God really want to be called Father? Many weeks, our worship includes songs to the Father, prayers to the Father, scripture texts that name him as Father, but does God really want to be called Father? I have a hunch that if I ask that question of Christians in almost any other century, they would look at me incredulous, speechless, until they found the words to say, does God really want to be called Father? Have you never read the Bible? Don't you know how Jesus taught his followers to pray? Don't you understand that at the heart of Christianity is being children of the Heavenly Father? What do you, what do you mean does God really want to be called Father? Now, they might cut me some slack if they thought that all I had of the Bible was the Old Testament, because the first three quarters of the Bible don't make much of the fatherhood of God. In fact, Genesis through Malachi, God is called Father only 14 times. And not in the intimate personal sense in which we have come to know God as Father, but in the corporate sense, that is, God is the Father of the nation of Israel. Then when we get to the New Testament, a very different picture emerges. Matthew through Malachi, God is called Father some 200 times. Father is Jesus' favorite name for God. Father is how we are taught to address God in prayer. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes to us from our Father above. Our Father provides for us. Our Father guides us, our Father sometimes chastens and disciplines us. And all the benefits of the gospel that we find in the new covenant can be summed up as benefits of adoption, benefits of those who have been brought into God's family. After the Korean War, 
a U.S. GI had an affair with a Korean woman and came back to the States never knowing that she bore his child. Now this child did not look like most Korean children. She had lighter, curly hair, and at least at that time there was intense prejudice in Korea against children who looked like that. In fact, some mothers pregnant with the children of white servicemen from the United States would actually kill their babies rather than see them grow up and suffer the kind of discrimination and persecution that they knew they were in for. But this mother did not do that. She did her best to raise her little girl, uh, tough as it was, for about five years. And um, then she did something, because she had had enough, something that most of us would find unthinkable. She put her little girl out on the street. And then that little girl's tough life got even tougher. She did the best she could to take care of herself out on the street until she finally found her way to an orphanage where she at least was cared for for a few years. And then in the orphanage, the news came one day that the next day an American couple were going to come and adopt one of the children. Well, the whole place was abuzz because at least one of these kids was going to have a future, hope, a family, parents. The next day came, and here's how that girl tells the story years later. The American couple showed up, and she writes, it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up every baby and coo over them and smile at them. I could tell that he loved each of them. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if he could, he would take them all home with him. And then he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now let me tell you that I was nine years old, but I did not yet weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But then the man came over to me, and he put his big hand on my face, and then he began jabbering in his language. What was he saying? He smiled at me. I found out later he was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. That's the gospel. That this great, big, strong, compassionate, large-hearted God looked at miserable, unworthy me and said, I'm going to make him my child. That's the gospel. So I say again <laughs> that people of faith in almost any other century would not understand the title of my sermon today. 
Does God really want to be called Father? But in our time, some have raised that question and think that the answer is no. Some have said that to refer to God as Father can only be heard as good news for people who have had decent earthly fathers. How can the fatherhood of God resonate with a little boy who has never known a father but only a series of uncles? How can the fatherhood of God seem good news to a little girl whose father abused her, perhaps scarring her for life? And since so many have had such miserable experiences in their birth families, we should not refer to God as Father, but find other ways to describe him. Years ago, John A.T. Robinson wrote a book, Honest to God, in which he says nothing at all about the fatherhood of God, and he left that theme out deliberately because, he says, of the breakdown of the family in our times. I don't buy that argument. I don't think it gives people credit for enough intelligence to form a positive image from their own negative experience. When, in fact, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, how many couples come to their wedding day resolved to do things differently than their parents did? How many young fathers resolve to avoid the mistakes their father made, to be different than their own dads? Now, whether those resolutions are carried out or not is beside the point. The point is that people can, even from their own unhappy childhood experience, form a picture of ideal fatherhood. Some of us can say, thank you, God, that my dad was a good mirror of your fatherhood. I am so blessed. And others of us have to say, my father failed here, 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 here. But thank you, Heavenly Father, that you never fail me. Another reason that some are saying that we should not refer to God as Father is because of the influence of feminist theology. Some theologians and church leaders and publishing houses who would rather be heretical than out of step with the culture have said that uh, we should not refer to God in masculine terminology. And so you may hear prayers that start something like this. God who is to us as father and mother. Or you'll hear contorted grammar that does linguistic somersaults to avoid using any kind of masculine pronoun for God, even to the point of rewriting the Bible. For example, John 3.16. Many of you have memorized it. Say it with me in whatever version you have memorized, and I expect I'm going to hear a fair amount of King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, here's how it reads in a gender-neutral lectionary. A lectionary is a collection of scripture readings. 
For God so loved the world that God gave God's only child that whoever believes in that child should have eternal life. John 1, in the same version, reads, The Word became flesh, and we have seen the Word's glory as of the one and only child from God the Father and Mother. Does God want to be called Mother? I don't know about you, but I am not ready to give up. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Or, Father, I adore you. Or, children of the Heavenly Father. But there's a lot more at stake in this issue than rewording some of our favorite songs. Here are a few examples of what's at stake in the issue, whether God should be called Father or not. First, the authority of the Bible. It was God, not only human authors, who chose to reveal God as Father. Classic texts on the inspiration of the Bible tell us that this is a God-breathed book. Peter writes that the authors of Scripture were born along, moved along by the Holy Spirit, so that, as the Apostle Paul puts it, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is His Word. He decided to reveal Himself in masculine terms. Both Hebrew and Greek, the languages in which the Bible is primarily written, have the vocabulary to describe God in feminine terms or neuter terms had God so chosen. But he didn't. And Israel's pagan neighbors, as well as the Greek and Roman culture in which the church was born, all had goddesses as well as gods. So if God had so chosen the vocabulary was there, and the mental imagery was there to reveal God's self as masculine and feminine, neither or both. But that's not how God chose to reveal himself. And not only will some people rewrite the scriptures to avoid masculine language for God, they will flatly contradict the scriptures on this issue. I saw an egregious example of this in a commentary on Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached a sermon once in which he took the people of Judah to task for their compromise with neighboring pagan idolatry. Specifically, they were worshiping the Queen of Heaven, Jeremiah blasts them with some pretty strong language. But the author of this commentary, a professor at an allegedly Christian institution, sided with the idolaters against Jeremiah. He wrote that the people of Israel in that time had felt there was something missing in their experience of God. They needed to come in touch with God's feminine side, and they found a way to do that in the worship of their pagan neighbors, and specifically by including in their worship 
the queen of heaven. So, what's at stake in the question I raise in my sermon today? The authority of the Bible. And secondly, the very nature of God. The authority of the Bible and the nature of God. Now you can see that the nature of God is at stake in, in a commentary that sides with the queen of heaven. Um, a feminine deity or a neuter deity or one that's both and or neither nor is not the deity that we encounter in scripture. Rather, the nature of God that we find in this book is warrior, king, lord, master, husband, father. Does it mean that he's male? I mean, as if he, as if he had a body with male parts? No, and, and no responsible Jewish or Christian teacher has ever said so. But the nature of God is such that it is fitting it is inevitable that he would use masculine language to reveal himself. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, all of us, men as well as women, angels and demons, are all feminine in relation to God. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that God is sovereign, we are contingent that God is creator, we are creaturely, that God initiates, we respond, that God woos and we are wooed, that God rules and we submit, that God is strong and we depend on that strength. Mark Ashton Smith, a professor at Cambridge University, was kayaking off the Isle of Wight when his kayak overturned. And his first instinct was to call his dad. So as he clung to the kayak in treacherous waters, he dialed his father on his cell phone, even though his father was 3,500 miles away training British troops in the Middle East. <laughs> his father relayed the May Day back to the Coast Guard station closest to where his son was, ironically, just about a mile away, and within 12 minutes, a helicopter rescued the grateful younger man. 33 years old, an adult, responsible, a professor at one of the world's most prestigious universities, and his instinct in trouble is to call father. And that's the Christian's instinct isn't it? Would the story be any different if I said he called mom? You know it would be. You know it would be. Not that mothers can't be strong. It's a different story. My mother was strong. I was blessed with two strong, godly parents. And I could never say that one is more important than the other, or that one or the other loved me more, or that I love one of them more. But I can and will say that something infinitely precious is lost when the nature of God is distorted by politically correct theology. And I call as witness 
Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. I call on Elizabeth Ochtemeyer because nobody could accuse her of being a chauvinist, an accomplished scholar, respected teacher, and author with the Lord now, but for years taught at Union Seminary in Virginia, and one who disagrees with me and with our church's leaders on the ordination of women, and yet she could write that feminist theology is in the process of laying a foundation for a new faith which is at best only loosely related to apostolic Christianity. So there's a lot at stake here. The authority of the Bible, the nature of God, and the, therefore our experience of God. <laughs> Several years ago, Edward Farrell of Detroit took his two-week vacation to go over to Ireland to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. On the morning of the big day, Ed and his uncle went down to the shore of uh, Lake Killarney to watch the sunrise, and as it peaked above the horizon, his uncle turned and just watched the sun in silence for 20 minutes. Neither of them spoke. They just looked at the sun. Magnificent creation. And then this old man began to skip and dance there on the beach, and uh, after catching up with him, Ed commented, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said with tears on his cheeks. You see, the father is fond of me. The father is so very fond of me. Would the story be different? He talked about his mother. <laughs> you know it would. You know it would. I said I'm blessed to have two good parents. Many of you could say the same. Mothers are precious. We'll celebrate that next Sunday, Lord willing, on Mother's Day. Something about the fatherhood of God. The movie, What a Girl Wants, tells the story of Daphne Reynolds, a 17-year-old being raised by a single mom. From the time she was little, Daphne has heard the story of how her parents met. Her father was son of aristocrats in Britain, her mother a wanderlust American hippie. They met in Morocco fell in love, and that love was consummated with a Bedouin marriage ceremony and the conception of Daphne. But her father's parents would not recognize the marriage and sent the mother packing back to America where Daphne was born. And Daphne longs for a relationship with this dad she never met. Well, as this one scene in the movie opens, Daphne and her mother are working a wedding reception. Daphne is a caterer's assistant. Her mother, Libby, is a musician. And uh, Libby announces a father-daughter dance. 
And from the catering tent, Daphne watches the bride's father dancing with the bride. And then she sees other dads dancing with their daughters. One dad even picks up a little girl whose feet don't touch the ground. And he whirls her around the dance floor. And the the ache in Daphne's face is plain. Her mother sees it. And when the song ends, Libby finds Daphne collecting salt and pepper shakers in the tent and comes over and says, Honey, I know. I, I saw your look. And Daphne doesn't even want to talk about it. Too painful. Her heart aches for a relationship with father that she knows she'll never have. Christian, you have a relationship with the Father. Don't let any theological innovator take it from you. We're in the Sermon on the Mount this spring and summer. I hope that if you haven't already done so, you'll read the Sermon on the Mount not just count on the sermon to deliver the goods. And if you do, you'll see a lot about the fatherhood of God. In fact, we only need to glance at Matthew chapter 6 to see this. Verse 1, don't do your acts of righteousness to show off to other people. If you do, you won't have a reward from your father. Verse 4, for example, your giving should be in secret so that your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, verse 6, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who is unseen will reward you. Don't keep on babbling like pagans who think that they've got to keep listing their needs over and over again because, verse 8, your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, verse 9. Verse 14, forgive others and your heavenly Father will forgive you. Don't forgive others and your Father will not forgive you. Verse 18, when you fast, don't put on a pouty face, but comb your hair, wash your face so it won't be obvious to other people that you're doing this religious exercise, but only your Father and your Father will reward you. Verse 26, don't worry about the needs of life. Your father feeds the birds and you are much more valuable to him than they are. Verse 32, don't run around saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Like pagans do because your father knows that you need these things. It's no wonder that somebody has called Matthew chapter 6 life with father. And it's no wonder that J.I. Packer could write in his classic book, Knowing God, words, some of which Drew quoted a few, years ago, a few weeks ago when we started on Matthew 6. This is Packer. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of our holy creator. 
In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. There's an old story about a Roman emperor who is leading a victory procession down the streets of Rome. He's at the head of the parade and behind him are his soldiers and their captives and all that they have taken in battle. And along the parade route is a, a viewing stand where the empress and her family await for her husband to walk by. And when the procession gets to the stand, a young boy jumps down off the stand and pushes his way through the crowd lining the street and crawls between the legs of a couple of legionnaires who are there holding back the crowd, and he runs out into the street. Well, one of the legionnaires runs out and grabs him by the collar and lifts him up, not unkindly, and says, young man, you can't go out there. You know whose chariot that is? That's the emperor. And the boy says, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. And that's the confidence that the Christian has. That we can approach the majestic and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.